some of the topics discussed on Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast are difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Episode 5 of Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and with me is my co-host, Dan. What up, y'all? April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So the remainder of our episodes for the month will provide information and cases about this topic. The case we're going to discuss today makes me incredibly angry, and to me, what happened to the perpetrator perpetuates rape culture. I have written numerous papers and assignments about this topic and this case, so I'm extremely passionate about it and the outcome of the case. This episode, we're going to discuss Campus Sexual Assault, and the Emily Doe Brock Turner case. Sexual assault on college campuses is extremely common. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, among undergraduate students, 23.1% of females and 5.4% of males experience rape or sexual assault through physical force, violence, or incapacitation. Around 1 a.m. January 18th, 2015, two graduate students, Peter Lars Johnson and Carl Friedrich Arndt, were riding their bicycles by the Kappa Alpha Fraternity House on the Stanford University campus when they spotted something they found to be unusual. They saw a man assaulting a woman behind a dumpster. Johnson confronted the perpetrator, asking, what the fuck are you doing? She's unconscious. This startled the perpetrator and he fled. While Johnson chased him down, Arndt went to determine if the woman was breathing. As Johnson approached the perpetrator, he realized he was smiling. And the perpetrator later testified he was smiling and laughing because he found the entire situation to be ridiculous. Johnson and Arndt held the perpetrator until the police arrived on scene, preceding his arrest. So right there, I want to stop and just talk about, you know, bystander prevention and all of that stuff because a lot of this stuff on college campuses, people witness and don't really do much about because they assume, oh, they're just drunk, you know, college kids. Like, let them do what they're going to do. Thankfully, these two had the wherewithal to be like, no, that situation seems a little strange. Like, let's see what's going on. Yeah, I commend them. Absolutely. 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 Now, I think they're like... Swedish or something, so I don't know if maybe yeah, it's like a, yeah, yeah, right. I don't know if it's like a cultural thing, it's a warrior culture thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe they just thought to themselves, like in our culture, like we step in, right? <laughs> you know, because like here in America, it, we don't see that happening very often. No, um, we just kind of let things go. Like I don't want to get involved because what if it's a mistake? What if what yep. I'm seeing is actually not what I'm thinking it is? And then I'm going to feel like a fool or, yep. you know, uh, to be honest, I'd rather feel like a fool and prevent something that I thought was something detrimental than allow something to go on because I'm afraid to step in. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? I mean, <clears throat> there have been times that I can recall nothing anywhere near like that serious, right. but there have been times that I can recall thinking like maybe I should have stopped and seen if that person was okay yeah seen if they needed help but you know i was busy i was on my way to work or or whatever i was picking up dinner and i was hungry and i really just wanted to go home um 
and maybe I could have just stopped and said, hey, man, are you okay? And he would have been like, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, okay, great. I'll right. go on my way. Yeah. But I didn't because, you know, we're, we have such busy lives these days. And like you said, it's not part of our culture. It's part of our culture to let things lie mm-hmm. um, because we don't want to step out of line. So I think everyone has experienced a moment, again, nothing that serious, but a moment like that where you, where you can maybe reflect on it and think, you know, I probably could have taken two seconds, even if there's a 1% chance that I could have prevented something that turned into a big deal, it's maybe worth spending the two seconds to take that 1% chance. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you remember the night we were coming home from dinner, we had just gone to dinner with your parents and we were driving home and we were going through the back streets like we normally do. I mean, it was a restaurant that was right by where we live. Um, and there was a car the swerving, driver, yeah, yeah, swerving down the road. Yeah. And we weren't sure if he was drunk, if he was having a medical emergency, if he just was a bad driver, right. um, whatever the case may be. But he passed us and you could see that he was starting to kind of slump over yeah. um so you know we stopped and immediately called the police and let yeah. them know um his location and the the make and model of the vehicle um unfortunately we lost him in the neighborhood um so i don't know what came of that obviously but you know we saw something strange and right. we called and you know it was up to the police at that point. Yeah, and I mean, it was it was an active thought process, too. The yes. possibility could have been, hey, we're tired, let's just go home. Right. You know, it wasn't like we just snapped into action. We actually had to think about it and say, should we do something about this? Yeah. And you were the one who was like, yeah, I'm calling cops. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, for these two guys, it, they just snapped into action. And like you said, maybe that's part of their culture, or maybe they're just great guys, I don't know. But they, they immediately knew what they had to do. And what's great about that... Um, What's great about that particular incident, too, is that they, like, they, I don't know if they were on some kind of sporting team, if they were best friends or whatever, but they had such great teamwork that the one guy immediately knew to go chase him down, and the other guy immediately knew to go check on the girl. Yes. Like, that's awesome. Those are the kind of guys I want on my team for anything. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They, they, like you said, snapped into action. They were just kind of like, all right, we got to do this thing. The situation seems weird, and yeah. we're just gonna step it up. Yeah. We're gonna do what we what we can here. So the survivor of the assault, who was named Emily Doe at this stage in the case due to the nature of the allegations, was rushed to the hospital to receive a SANE exam. We talked about what this exam is in the Darren Sharper episode, but just to quickly touch on that, it's a rape examination performed by a trained nurse, a sexual assault nurse examiner. The survivor is swabbed basically all over the body with little Q-tip looking things to obtain possible DNA from the body. Uh, This is literally from like head to toe. Uh, Photos are also taken and a toxicological exam is also possibly performed. This is all sent off to the crime lab with the police to be processed into evidence. So Emily Doe gets rushed to the hospital unconscious. She wakes up in the hospital around 4.15 a.m. So now her assault was around 1 a.m., and she wakes up three hours later okay. in the hospital. She wakes up with twigs and brush in her hair, wearing completely different clothes. She also saw dried blood on the backs of her hands, and the nurse testified at trial that she had abrasions and significant trauma and penetrating trauma, which means um, it's evidence of vaginal trauma. Okay. 
She had no idea why she was in the hospital, and she assumed she got really drunk at the party she attended on the Stanford campus and went to the hospital because she passed out and was a nuisance. She literally thought, oh no, like, what did I do? Right, like, did they have to throw me out of this place and I stumbled down a hill and passed out or Mm -hmm. whatever? No one for quite a while at the hospital informed her of why she was actually there. They kept alluding to her having been assaulted, but she assumed it wasn't true and that they were just following protocol. At one point, she went to the bathroom and went to pull her underwear down and realized she was not wearing any. She rubbed her thighs in the motion of pulling down underwear, but there was nothing there. She was completely confused. She was later informed by the police who interviewed her that there may have been a sexual assault that took place where she was the possible victim. She was shocked. She said she did not remember being alone with any man and that she definitely did not consent to having any sexual activity. I can't even imagine this situation of going to a party, waking up hours later in a hospital with none of your friends or family around. A police officer is there. A sexual assault nurse examiner is there. They're telling you that you may possibly have been a victim of sexual assault, that they have to go through all of these things, give you a rape exam, and you're kind of just like, wait, what? What are you talking about? No, that didn't happen. Exactly. I don't remember it. Yeah, sure, because you can get that sense, you know, even just when you've been out drinking and you black out or whatever, Mm -hmm. and, you know, you wake up at a completely different, you know, quote unquote, wake up at a completely different club or at a completely different person's house, or you just wake up the next morning at your friend's apartment and you're like uh what yeah like i didn't i didn't go here i didn't drive here i didn't walk here like what happened yeah you know or if like i said if you come to if it's not you know that bad or whatever it's only like 45 minutes or whatever that you you black out for you wake up at like a different or you wake up at like at the diner the diner and you're like uh i must be dreaming because we didn't go to the diner we're still at whatever yeah so yeah for that to same thing to happen but then in a hospital. Exactly. And your hair is covered in, in stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, like, that's got to be very disconcerting. What and the hell happened? Be, yeah, you could be questioning your own self, mm-hmm. your own perception. Like, am I dreaming? Am I hallucinating? Like, what was in that drink? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How much did I drink? What happened? Did someone spike my drink? Like, it, it, so many things are probably running through this girl's head at this time of... Like, nobody's telling me what's going on, but they're, like, sidestepping it. You know, they're alluding to that I'm a possible victim, but nobody's actually telling me. Like, so I read her book, and I'll talk about her book later, but um, in it she talks about this situation, and she's such a polite person that she doesn't even, like, ask them. Not once does she say, like, why am I here? Like, what's going on? She just is kind of like, oh, okay. Like, they're telling her things, and she's just taking in that information. Like, sure. Right. I'll, whatever. This is is nothing. Right. She doesn't think it's a major deal, because she's not expecting to have actually been sexually assaulted. Sure, and you're never prepared for that either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. You, you, your brain doesn't quite know what to do with that input, you know, so it's it's easy to, to either deny it or get angry about it or, like you said in her case, just accept it and, and just kind of figure it out later. Yeah. It's like, I'll worry about it later because this is weird. Yeah. She then finds out that her attacker's name is Brock Turner. 
Turner was a swimmer from Stanford. I hate talking about this part, but it's so relevant at this point. Turner was a swimmer from Stanford, and the media made him out to be the golden child. They plastered nice photos of him, used his affluent family upbringing, his athletic accolades, and his blonde-haired, blue-eyed good looks to make him out to be someone who should not be blamed for this act. Now, I'm all about innocent until proven guilty. Dan will tell you that. (laughs) But we have such a double standard in our society. You know, good-looking, affluent, white kid is innocent when accused of sexual assault, but poor black kid is automatically assumed to be guilty when accused of basically anything. Oh, yeah. Anything. Oh, yeah. Drugs, murder, rape, theft, any of that. Yep. But if a white kid is accused of something so heinous of sexual assault, all you have to do is post a picture of him looking good in his little polo and talk about, oh, he's a star athlete. Right. And people are like, oh, he made a mistake. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the the same double standard applies in many cases to people like politicians. You know, well, that guy, look at all the good he's done for our community. Therefore, he can't possibly have ever done a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? The world isn't good and evil. It's not black and white. Right. You can have someone who's mostly good and they messed up. You can have someone that's mostly bad and they occasionally appear to be good enough to fool everyone. Right. Absolutely. And victims in sexual assault cases are also seen as the bad person a lot of the time. Um, You know, they shouldn't have been wearing that, shouldn't have been drinking that, shouldn't have been doing that. But again, affluent cute boy was seduced because, you know, oh, she was wearing a miniskirt. What was he he supposed to (laughs) do in that situation? You know? Right. It's so disgusting that because she drank a lot... That automatically means, yeah, well, that's totally fine. He was drinking, too. Like, what's the big deal? Not only is it okay, it's obligatory. Uh Like, clearly she wants this to happen. Exactly. Because otherwise, why would she be at a party? Exactly. Not not to enjoy herself and have fun with her friends, but to be sexually assaulted. Right. That's that's why she went. And, like, you know, know, the only reason to dress, quote-unquote, sexy isn't to have sex. Maybe you just want to feel good. Yeah. About yourself. Absolutely. Abso-freaking-lutely. You know, like there's that Dane Cook joke about putting all the pockets and pocket the pocket in the, in the center, center and, and just dance. And F guys, yep. I just want to dance. Yep. Yeah, well, those girls all got all done up. Yep. They probably, you know, theoretical girls in this fake scenario, probably all yes. look really hot, but that doesn't mean that they want to get laid that night. Maybe they just want to dance, you know? Yeah, exa- exactly. And that's most of the time. I mean, I, I know when I was going out to the clubs, you know, I'm I'm an old lady now, so I don't go out. But when I was young, um, I was going out to the clubs, and I was actually, usually I was dating somebody when I was going out. So I wasn't going out to attract guys or get a date or any of that stuff. But my girlfriends and I were going out to have a fun night with each other. And most of the time, if a guy came over to dance with us, we would all like do, and I know a lot of girls do it, we would all kind of like surround each other and like kind of dance the guy away mm. because we're like, we're not here for you. Like we right. didn't dress up for you. We did right. this for ourselves and it doesn't give you the right to come over and, you know, grind on us. Right. Like just cause I'm wearing a cute outfit and I did my makeup. Right. Doesn't give you the right to, to do anything. Right. Like, you can come over and ask if I want to dance, and if I say no, then you go away. (laughs) 
you know, but yeah. it, it, otherwise, it, it's not an invitation. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny because in a lot of ways, we really have come very far as a society in terms of equality and acceptance and tolerance and whatnot, but there are still these underlying assumptions that we make as people that, you know, they hearken from back in the day when, you know, at an event where the women would have to look pretty and wait for a guy to come to them and show interest in them. And then, and then maybe they would get married and they would throw on their, uh, their apron and cook the man his dinner and, you know, and you say, oh, well, that sounds ridiculous because that's not the world we live in. And you're right, it's not the world we live in. We now have a gender equal workforce and all that stuff. But at the same time, we still regress to these old primitive notions mm-hmm. in situations like that. Like when you're out at the club, you know, the women are supposed to go there and they're supposed to look attractive so that a man will come to them and say, oh, okay, we can, we can do this now. This yeah. can happen. Right. And that's not at all what's happening now. Right. Exactly. Right. Women aren't doing that anymore. They're right. going out for themselves, right. not for men. And of course, some of them are. Some of them are going out to pick up guys, and that's totally fine, but not everybody, and that shouldn't be the assumption. Right, and that's exactly my point, is that's just the assumption. Exactly. Exactly. So, what actually happened that night? Emily Doe and her sister and some friends decided to go to a party at Stanford University. Emily was not a student there, but figured she would have a fun night out with friends and be the old person at the party. She joked about that in her book as well, because she was much older than everybody else who was going to be there. So she kind of joked like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll be there. I'll I'll embarrass my sister. You know, I'll be that old girl, you know, whatever. It's been a while since my party days. So um, she figured, why not? I'll go out and have a good time with my sister. Brock Turner also attended this party, and according to Emily's sister's testimony at trial, Turner attempted to kiss her, the sister, on two separate occasions that night. He approached her, tried to kiss her, she pushed him away, and like later that night he approached her again and tried to do the same thing. Right. Like already he's showing a pattern of advancing on women who were denying him like literally they're like no i don't want you to do that and he's just like i'm gonna do it again right and that's another thing that we kind of we haven't gotten past as a society is the idea that like oh she's playing hard to get yes like people don't do that anymore you know we don't live in that society where everyone has like the rules of etiquette anymore like we're we're in a very modern very open society where if someone says they do or do not want something they do or do not want that thing correct yeah yeah and playing hard to get it is so arbitrary now because like who's actually doing that right like who's actually going out and you know acts like the tease right so called you know Nobody is going, again, out to a party and is like, oh, I'm waiting for the guy to come over to me so that I can be like, no, I don't want you. Right. And then, like, wait for him to come back. No, I don't. Women are not doing that anymore. Women are not. (laughs) Women now are very strong and assertive themselves. So, to be honest with you, a lot of women are just going to go up to the guy that they're attracted to. And not wait for them. Exactly. You know, I would imagine that, you know, back in, back in, 
whatever the seventies, let's say, you know, if you're at some school dance or something, the the girls may legitimately have been interested in a guy, but they just simply were not allowed to go up to them. Yeah. So they had to wait for him to come to them. You know, and and there's an attitude that dates all the way back to like the prehistory of humans where, you know, the, the stronger the stronger males would be able to to kill the saber-toothed tiger. And so, you know, that 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 creates this attitude in in women again going way 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 back where the strong man would provide for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe that somehow has to do with that playing hard to get that you want a guy who doesn't take no for an answer. And you know, even going up all the way up to like the 70s where women really did not have uh, control of their own lives. Mm. You know, they really kind of depended on a man in many cases because um, they just couldn't make the same kind of money. They probably couldn't get a mortgage if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, so they depended on that, on the man to do all of these things for them. And so they, the, the attitude of, I still need a strong man, kind of fueled that idea of playing hard to get. Because if you say no to this guy, even if you're interested, and he goes away... Well, then maybe he's not going to go back to the bank the third or fourth time to get that loan for you guys to get your house to have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so e- even that late, even as late as only 50 years ago, you could almost say that there was a logic to playing hard to get because, you know, as a young woman, you needed that strong man in your right. life. But we simply don't live in that world anymore. No. Um, and that's why, like you said, women don't do that anymore. Women don't play hard to get anymore. No. And it's not even a question of, women going from playing hard to get to like being quote-unquote aggressive or being easy to get they're just now equal where there's a person whether you're a male or a female right who likes a person whether that person is a male or a female and you've decided to engage that person absolutely so you know whether it's the man going to the woman and, and saying hey do you want to dance or the woman going to the man and saying hey do you want to dance exactly it's 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 progress towards equality, not an imbalance. It's not women, you know, taking taking the initiative. It's women taking equal initiative. <laughs> exactly. The thing that we as men have enjoyed forever. Exactly. You know, and I'm not trying to go on some, like, feminist tirade here. I'm just going on an equality tirade here. Yeah. It's these things are not about balancing rights in one direction or the other. They're about balancing rights, period. Period. Yes. <laughs> it, right. Full stop. Yeah. That's it. Equality. At every level. So, not only did he try to uh, kiss the sister twice in one night after she denied him, um, but Emily's sister also testified that she never once saw Turner and Emily interact at all at the party. So, keep that in mind. So, Emily decided at one point that she was going to go home. She had had enough of the party scene, and she just wanted to go home, go to sleep, call her boyfriend, you know, whatever. This was pretty much the last thing she remembers from that night. Turner told police that he met her outside the frat house and that they left together. But at a separate interview, he told police that he met Emily at the Kappa Alpha house and that they, quote, drank beer together and, quote, walked away from the house holding hands. He then told police that he took off Emily's clothes and fondled her while she rubbed his back. Which I don't really know how that works. How do you take somebody's clothes (laughs) off while they're rubbing your back? (laughs) And how do you fondle someone in the front while they're rubbing your back in the back? I'm not really sure how this is all supposed to logistically work in his mind. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I yeah. Don't think so. None of that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, you'd ha- you'd ha- if you were like literally hugging, then I could like have my arms around your back, rubbing your back. But then you'd ha- you'd you'd be like, well, right. Then pretty difficult for you to take my clothes off. And doing and that. if you're fondling, like, how are you fondling if right, you're that you need close? Some room to fondle. Exactly. I, it, a lot of what he says at trial right. makes no sense right. whatsoever, and we'll I'll go into a lot of that. It really like. I'm guessing he wasn't a 4.0 student. I don't know. I mean, he was a swimmer, so it really didn't matter. Yeah. He was a star athlete. Right. Whatever his GPA was, didn't matter. Right. Not really sure, actually, though. But that's a good point. <laughs> I should have looked that up. So, uh, I'm also inclined to believe that not many people want to be stripped and fondled behind a dumpster. No. That's no. also something that's crossed my mind reading this case, like, a thousand times. Like... And even if, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, even if you're one of these a-hole guys who's like, oh, some women like it like that. Well, clearly, this was not one of those cases. No. She was clearly, a, you know, a nice girl. Yeah. You know, yeah. she's not... Yeah. She doesn't have, like, deviant tendencies. And she's not asking you, like, hey, let's go behind the dumpster. Like, okay, right. fine. Like, some people, maybe they do want to. Right, uh, right. Cool. But, like... But this is not that This case. is not... No. No. Nothing about this says that so at this point turner claimed he felt nauseous and got up to vomit when two guys yelled at him and tackled him unprovoked he also denied i know he also denied running from the grad students who found him attacking emily but mind you he ended up being tackled 75 feet away from where the attack took place so how are you getting 75 feet away that quickly if you're not running away from somebody. Right. So so those guys just were like crab walking after you? I, like, and you just casually walked 75 feet yep. before this, you know, Viking got to you? Exactly. No, I'm pretty sure. No. That's not how that works. Exactly. And like the police were there. So it's not even yes. like it's their word against his where he can say, oh, no, 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 I wasn't 75 feet away. Yeah. I was a couple feet away. I started to walk away when he jumped me. Like, no, you, you don't get 75 feet away from someone who's chasing you unless you are running. Right. Exactly, exactly. So I actually wrote in my notes, did he teleport? Because, yeah. like, seriously, like, he right. just, he frustrates me so, well, so much. Clearly, if you can fondle someone as they're running oh, yes, back, right. then he is not subject to the laws of physics. <laughs> so clearly. he did teleport. He did, exactly. Oh, my God. His attitude just, like irks the crap out of me and Dan knows that this case just bothers me so 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 much and I've actually told him that if I get a little too um crazy over this that he, he's got to like settle me down a little bit because yeah, this, this case really just like it it blows my mind that first of all so many people were on his side about this and that when it came to sentencing and everything, there were still people in the judicial system who were so quick to be like, well, he's a young kid and he made a mistake. Let's not punish him forever. But she's now going to be punished forever because of right. something he did. Right. How is that at all fair in the eyes of the law? Right. It's it's not and and again i'm gonna get into all of that towards the end of this but like it just every single thing in this case makes me so angry aside from literally the grad students who stopped the situation and 
Emily's overcoming of all of this because like everything else in this case just like drives me insane right. absolutely insane and his attitude like I said just like bothers the crap out of me but that will become more clear as to why he has that attitude when I talk about his family because you know generally rich white folk apple doesn't fall far from the tree so during his trial testimony Turner stated that he and Emily drank beer together danced and kissed at the party and agreed to go back to his room now if you remember emily's sister testified that she never once saw them together at all and they were together for pretty much the entire night right so where is this happening right again laws of physics must not be right yeah no he (laughs) shapeshifted for sure so turner stated that emily slipped on a slope behind a wooden shed So now apparently this dumpster became a wooden shed. And then Turner got down to the ground and started kissing her. (laughs) You know, as you naturally do. Right. When someone falls, you go to kiss them to make them feel better. Well, right. You got a boo-boo. Yeah. I'm going to kiss you to make you feel better. Yeah. That's definitely what this was. Yeah, just natural response. For sure. He stated he then asked her if she wanted him to finger her, to which she said yes. He stated that he fingered her for a minute as they were kissing. Then they started dry humping. He also testified that he stumbled down an incline where he was confronted by the grad students, saying things like, you're sick, and do you think that's okay? Turner testified that he didn't know what they were talking about. So now he's told, like, three different stories about, like, how all of this happened. He, you know, he was drunk, and maybe doesn't remember fully what happened, but, like, did you meet her outside? Did you meet her inside? Were you kissing inside? Right. Did you wait till you got outside? Was it a dumpster? Was it a dumpster? Was it a, dumpster? Was it a shed? Did she, she slip? Did you slip? Really? It's a slippery slope. It's a slip, clearly. <laughs> and how did you end up 20, 75 feet away? Right. Like, it, right. nothing. And how did the two guys not slip? This is the slippery oh, yeah. slope in the world. Clearly. It's, but they, but they, they had no trouble. Well, maybe because they're Swedish. Yeah, it's true. Or Norwegian. I think they're Swedish. But, yeah. I It's just... I digress. I can't. I can't. Mm. So part of what was brought into evidence at the trial was the blood, blood alcohol levels of both Turner and Emily. Of course, because they were both intoxicated. So this has to be brought into evidence. Again, it does not mean that she consented because when you are intoxicated and unconscious, you cannot consent. That's literally the law. So, but it has to be brought in because of other circumstances. So Turner's was estimated to be 0.171% at 1 a.m., which was around the time of the assault. Emily's was tested at the hospital. So that was a couple hours later. um, And... It was 0.12%. And doctors estimated her blood alcohol level around the time of the assault was probably around 0.2 or anywhere between 0.242 to 0.249%. There are some conflicting reports about the actual level. But um, the legal level is 0.08%. Right. So... So they were both messed up. For sure. For sure. I, I mean, you know, and that could definitely lead to a blackout. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, no yeah, no doubt about that. Especially if she doesn't go out much these days. Right. You know, you know, your tolerance builds up the more and more you consume mm-hmm. alcohol. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're not consuming alcohol, um, 
your body doesn't produce the enzymes that break it down as easily and yeah. so it can bind to all the receptors that make it do its do its deal exactly so she hasn't been going out and drinking much these days and she's four times the legal limit absolutely that'll black you right out for sure whereas he's three times the legal limit but he probably drinks all the time so oh, he probably yeah in fairly good control of his of his faculties probably to further show how intoxicated Emily was and how this made her unable to give consent, around 1 a.m. she called her boyfriend and left him an almost completely incoherent message. This evidence was later said to have been particularly strong to jurors as to her not being able to provide consent. Yeah. On January 28th, 2015, Brock Turner was indicted on five charges. One rape of an intoxicated person two rape of an unconscious person three sexual penetration by a foreign object of an unconscious person four sexual penetration by a foreign object of an intoxicated person and five assault with intent to commit rape the two formal charges of rape under california state law were dropped at a preliminary hearing on october 7th 2015 after DNA testing revealed no genetic evidence of genital-to-genital contact. So, basically, if there's no genital penetration, it cannot be considered rape under California law. It is then considered sexual assault. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, the trial began on March 14th, 2016. At trial, questions arose regarding Emily's history of drinking and blacking out. She did say she had gotten intoxicated in the past and has blacked out before due to this intoxication. But why does this matter? She could get blackout drunk every single night if she wanted to. But that doesn't give anyone right. the right to violate her. Right. It like, doesn't matter. Because guess what? I black out every night around 10 o'clock and I regain my consciousness around 6 a.m. the next morning. Does that mean that anyone can just bust in and do whatever they want to me? No. Nope. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the defense's job is to discredit the witness, and that's exactly what they were attempting here by, you know, saying, like, oh, well, you get drunk all the time, don't you? You black out all the time, don't you? But... Yeah, like, who cares? Right. So... Exactly. That's it's not illegal still, to do that. Correct. She's not driving. She's not operating heavy machinery. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, she's not operating heavy machinery. Correct. Trying to make her look like a drunk and a loose woman who just goes to parties and forgets what happens is not really... It's not relevant, um, I think is what you're trying to say. Um, yeah, well, it's not. Because, right, yes. again, to play devil's advocate, let's say that the argument is, well, we're speaking to her character to determine whether or not or how likely it is that she did give consent and she's now lying about having given consent or doesn't remember giving consent by establishing her character and saying, well, she goes out and gets wasted and hooks up with guys all the time, so she's just a big hoe, and she probably said yes. It doesn't even matter if that's all true. If she goes out every single night, gets shit-faced, goes on Facebook and says, who wants some, right, and hooks up with a different guy every single night, but then one guy has sex with her without her consent, it, none of the rest of that shit matters. Absolutely. Automatically, unless you're trying to establish a piece of evidence where you've got a video where she says, yes, I said Brock Turner could have sex with mm -hmm. a dumpster. Yeah. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah. So it doesn't even matter if you're establishing her character as the loosest woman in the world right. 
or a nun. Yeah. It's yeah. irrelevant. And, you know, there are statutes now that state um, that you cannot bring in, you know, sexual history of the of the complaining witness um, under these circumstances because, again, it's not a relevant piece of evidence to the case at hand because, like you're saying, just because they have sex with multiple partners at any other given time with consent does not mean that they're automatically given consent to have sex or whatever it is with this partner. This one is the case where there's no consent. Right. So just because she gave consent prior doesn't mean right. consent the, is implied. It the, doesn't mean that. Yeah, the only the only reason that establishing character would matter would be in the case of trying to establish the character of a potential perpetrator. Yes. If someone is known as, you know, someone someone who goes out and tries to hit on women all the time and you're not quite sure what he did in this case, if he has a history of this, again, I'm not saying it's necessarily telling for sure, but it at least goes to establish the character that this person has a propensity to try to commit these acts. Right, yeah. Whereas the defendant's character should be irrelevant. Exactly. The victim's character should be irrelevant. Exactly. And, <laughs> and um, you know, Emily's sister testified that he showed a pattern of that that night. Right. That he was attempting right. to... with her. <laughs> exactly. That he was attempting to make sexual advances that were denied, but he kept doing it until it actually worked. He just kept sure. trying sure. until it actually worked. And that doesn't, again, mean that Emily gave him consent. She was completely wasted. There's no way she could have given him right. consent for what he did. Right. Ever. Right. So on March 30th, 2016, Turner was found guilty of three felonies. Assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. So intoxicated and unconscious. Those were two separate charges. Prosecutors recommended that Turner be given a six-year prison sentence based on the purposefulness of the action, the effort to hide this activity, and her intoxicated state. Turner's father had this to say about this sentencing recommendation. Quote, The sentence is a steep price to pay for 20 minutes of action out of his 20-plus years of life. <laughs> What a tool. Garbage human who spawned a garbage human. Yeah, 20 minutes of action. That's yes. what you call that? Yes. Action? Yes. You call a rape action? Yes. Yep. And he thinks because his son, it was only 20 minutes. He only got satisfaction for 20 minutes. So right. now you're going to ruin the rest of his life. I'm sorry. For that 20 minutes, her life is now ruined. Right, so so I should be able to just walk up to his dad and just stab him for 20 minutes, yeah, right? Because yeah, it's yeah. just 20 minutes. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you're doing for those 20 minutes. Yep. You know, I yep. should be able to just, like, punch him in the face for 20 minutes. Because yep. it's just 20 minutes. Exactly. You know. Exactly. I've had 20 years of exemplary service. Mm -hmm. You know, I should be able to punch anyone I want for 20 minutes. Correct. And that's okay. Correct. You get, you get one minute per year. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I'm just going to go start punching people in the street and say, hey, Brock Turner's dad said it's cool. Uh, right. According to his dad, it's totally yeah, fine logical. to do that. Yeah. Dumbass. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, now we know where where Brock gets it. Yeah. It's the lovely. apple doesn't fall far from the blackened tree. Exactly. The dead tree. On June 2nd, 2016, Judge Aaron Persky sentenced Turner 
to six months in jail. Come on. Followed by three years of probation and registration for life as a sex offender. But, wait for it, Turner only served three months and was released on September 2nd, 2016. That's ridiculous. I knew that he had gotten a ridiculous sentence, but I didn't think it was that ridiculous. Yep. I remember when this was like in the news and stuff. Uh-huh. Three months is oh, all he did. Yes, he served three months. So he got convicted then, or are we going to go into that later? No, he did. So he got convicted. He got convicted. On multiple counts, three counts of the, sexual The assault. three counts that he was brought up on. Right. Correct. So it's not even like he just, they couldn't prove the case and he did, took a plea deal that said like, okay, well, nope. you acted inappropriately, so you're oh. only going to, he actually got convicted of rape. No. Not rape. Of Remember those were assault. yes. The the right. rape charges were dropped because okay, so there he, was no genital penetration. He actually got convicted. He got convicted of three, of three counts of, counts sexual, of sexual assault. assault. Correct. Mm-hmm. And only did three months in jail. Correct. That makes perfect sense. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yes. That's wow. Yeah. That's nuts. Complete miscarriage of justice. Oh yeah. Like it's it's oh, yeah. horrible. Yeah. And I can't even imagine what Emily's thought process is. She just went through this entire trial. She was put through being re-victimized when she had to testify. She had to see him. And then she gets the conviction. Like, that's a great day. You quote-unquote win, but... And then this happens. Yeah. And he's released three months later. Yeah, I'm sure she came out of feeling like, yeah, okay, great, justice is served. It was totally worth it. Yeah, I don't think so. No. Isn't that the job of the justice system? (laughs) To make people feel like justice was served? Mm -hmm. So now we can't talk about campus sexual assault without talking about Title IX. So Title IX is a federal civil rights law in the United States that was passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972. The original text signed into law by President Nixon in 1972 stated, oh, by the way, like, good on you, Nixon like one of the good things that he did in his <laughs> presidency. <laughs> um, anyway, it stated, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Cool. You're probably like, great, no discrimination for financial aid, but what does that have to do with this case? <laughs> well, title... Nine applies to all educational programs and all aspects of a school's educational system. In the late 1970s, a group of students and one faculty member sued Yale University for its failure to curtail sexual harassment on campus by a uh, by male faculty. Apparently, that was you know it's the 70s, and of course, it's that's just kind of what happened. So this case, Alexander v. Yale, was the first to use Title IX to argue and establish that the sexual harassment of female students can be considered illegal sex discrimination. Title IX now extends the discrimination to also mean the basis of sexual harassment, rape, and sexual assault. In the past, there were colleges that would force students to drop out if they came forward with sexual assault allegations. Like, literally. There was a case where, I forget which school it was, but um, a woman came forward and they didn't take her seriously and they were like, oh, well, with your allegations, we don't want a student like you here. And basically, like, harassed her 
and then what? forced her to leave the school. I thought you meant that the person who was being accused no. was forced to drop out. And I was like, well, that's a little bit much because you never know. And no, the person who's bringing accusing. the accusations, how the hell does that make any sense? Exactly. So that's why they extended Title IX to, to wow. exp- expand across all of that because... That's not fair to that a student who has more than likely gone through something very traumatizing. Right. And now you're forcing them to leave their institution because you don't want that on your campus. Right. I mean, this isn't like a person who continually makes accusations that are proven wrong mm-hmm. or right. something like that. Mm-hmm. Then, yeah, you may have a case for saying, like, look, you're disrupting people's education. Mm-hmm. You got to go. Mm-hmm. But, like, the first time? Yeah. Wow. That yeah. is dumb. And so she dropped out. That is dumb. Yeah. They didn't want to help the students, and instead they wanted their campuses to look as though they were squeaky clean, and nothing like that ever happens there. Unfortunately, this just meant more victim blaming and less coming forward with claims. Survivors were meant to keep it to themselves and never seek justice because it it could tarnish the college's reputation. Yeah, of course. They can't have that. Right, because they have to get that tuition. Uh Yeah. In 1990, the Jean Clary Disclosure of Campus Security Policy and Campus Crime Statistics Act, I know that was a lot, it's called the Clary Act, (laughs) was passed. Uh, This federal statute required college campuses receiving financial aid to disclose crime statistics and security policies. And um, I know from all the schools that I've gone to, and I've gone to a lot of colleges, um, (laughs) I get this, uh, I think it's the annual notice, but I get an email from all the schools that say like we we have to send this out every year and this is these are our crime statistics this is what's going on on campus and it's nice to see i mean most of the time i don't really read it because a lot of the campuses that i've been to don't have a lot of crime um thankfully but it's nice to see that they're they're following through with this right that they're actually trying to be transparent with their students and it's good to know it's good to be able to see in the case of like the safer colleges it's nice to look at that and see like 0.5 percent yeah it's nice to see these low numbers yes exactly before you may not have thought about it you just may have just said well safe is safe but Mm -hmm. well how safe is it Mm -hmm. you know you look at this report and say wow that's that's pretty darn safe yeah yeah i mean one of the schools that i went to um had the actual police department the police academy on campus so I felt super safe when I was at that school, yeah. you know, um, and the school I'm at now has, um, you know, our campus security is actually, uh, is actually police, like current police officers in the county. They're not just security right. officers right. or retired police. They're, they went through the police academy. Some of them work for the state. Some of them work for the county. And they have, they work through the school. Well, good. I mean, we've got enough cops in this county. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's nice to, it's nice to know how protected we are on, on some of these campuses. Um, so it also required that schools provide crime prevention programs to its students and employees. And then in 1994, the Violence Against Women Act, VAWA, was passed, which made violence based on gender a specific crime. Following this, almost 20 years later, was the Campus Sexual Violence Elimination Act, which is the Campus Save Act in 2013. This was an amendment to the Clary Act and requires transparency from institutions of higher learning about the extent of sexual violence on campus. So again, they have to let you know what's going on on your campus. 
-hmm. And I think that's a wonderful oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Sure. Because campus sexual assault is way too common. Yeah. And absolutely. it happens everywhere. So if you can if you can see the statistics of where you're going to school and actually understand how they take care of that, all the better of a place to be. Yeah, I mean, you have to assume that kind of stuff is happening. It's not, not you know, I'm not trying to say, like, it's okay, but you have to assume it's going to happen. And anyone, yeah. anyone who tries to tell me it doesn't happen here is a liar. Yeah. You know, you have a bunch of fit, energetic young people drinking a lot drinking and partying uh -huh. and exploring their their sexuality for Absolutely. the first time in their lives mm -hmm. it's gonna happen mm -hmm. it's gonna happen so if you try to tell me it doesn't happen here i'm gonna tell you you're a liar i agree i agree so um i also decided to look up stanford university's policies and procedures regard regarding title nine and what happens to the accused because on another podcast, um, Michelle Dauber, who uh, is a Stanford Law professor, had said that in the past they would require the accused and the accuser to sit in a room with faculty and try to kind of like mediate the situation. So after an attack, the you victim comes forward. Yep. And then they're like, oh, okay, come into a room with a bunch of old white men probably. Right. And let's hash it out here. That is almost as dumb as that other thing. Which is partly why people were not coming forward. Why? I wouldn't want to sit right. in the what, room what right after. What chance do you think you have? Exactly. No. No wow. way. No way. So, um, the following is how Stanford now handles these accusations. They have like a long list of, I think it's like nine steps. So, first, the Title IX office receives report of a concern. So the Title IX investigator sends outreach email with a list of resources to the complainant, and the complainant requests an inv investigation but reserves the right to withdraw the complaint if they uh, no longer want to go through with it. So then the Title IX office investigates. So the Title IX coordinator sends notice of concern to all involved parties. Uh, interim measures determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Title IX investigators interview the complainant, the responding student, and any witnesses that there, that there are. And parties may submit documentary evidence. So they kind of go through, you know, a discovery period. It's kind of like a, a trial in a sense, um, or a hearing maybe, um, more so than a trial. So they're going through discovery at that point. So then Title IX coordinator makes um, a charging decision. So after they look at all the evidence and they hear from both sides and the witnesses, they come to a conclusion. So they can either put through no charge, a non-hearing resolution, or a charge. So then a charge letter is issued to all involved parties and a hearing file released to the parties so you actually get information of how all of this happened, what was in the file, what was in this um, trial, essentially. And then a hearing schedule is set. So then there's evidentiary review. So the evidentiary specialist reviews any objections to contents of the hearing file. So they get sent all of this stuff and then somebody, you know, you can object to something that was in there. So now this specialist reviews if you have any objections to the evidence that was put forward. 
um, and the parties may submit statements in response to the evidence after the hearing file is finalized. And then we move on to the hearing and deliberation. So three panelists review the hearing file and meet with parties and any witnesses they wish to hear from. And the panelists deliberate and determine responsibility using preponderance of the evidence standard. So preponderance of the evidence is civil law standard, not criminal law. Uh, criminal law is beyond a reasonable doubt. Preponderance of the evidence is a lesser standard um, because lesser charges are coming forward in civil law. So for the accuser, preponderance of the evidence is better. For the accused, preponderance of the evidence is worse. Right. Because you have a more likely chance of being um, found to have committed this, right, right. this um, offense. After that, there is the outcome and sanctioning period. So this is where the remedies come in. So if responding student is found responsible, both parties may submit a sanction statement to, to the panel for consideration. And then the hearing panel provides findings and sanctions to the Title IX coordinator to determine appropriate remedies. And then an outcome letter is issued to the parties. So then there is the appeal process, like any normal, any normal case. So either party may appeal um, the outcome letter, um, and an automatic appeal to provost is expulsion, if expulsion is upheld. And then an ongoing management, you know, the Title IX coordinator monitors the sanctions and administers and adjusts administrative remedies for parties. So they now have this really, really long process, which is essentially what a normal trial is like. But to me, it's like, why are you going to go through this mini trial when they're probably going to be going to real trial? And again, you're now forcing that survivor to just relive all of this over and over and over and over. Right. I like, I understand it because again, like there are people who accuse and it's not founded but like we said i think in the last episode that doesn't happen very often right it's very few and far between that somebody is accusing somebody of doing something that didn't actually happen right so to go through this entire thing i mean i understand it because this is the fair thing to do i, I get that but again people are not going to be coming forward if they know they have to go through this entire process right with random people Right. You know. And like the the thing already happened. It's over now, so they may simply say, Forget it, I'm gonna move on. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't need not everyone feels like they need justice. Yeah. You know, some people decide, Hey, I just wanna get on with my life. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like somebody if somebody randomly keys your car in a parking lot, some people are like, I'm gonna spend all day now stalking around this place. And I'm going to come back here every day and look for the person that keyed my car. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, well, this sucks, but I guess I'm just going to have to take it and, and go get the car fixed, you know. So some people just don't, don't, don't care about getting the justice. So if you make it so difficult for them to get that justice, they may simply decide, screw it, I'm going to move on. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think that more people will be coming forward to their schools about something like this happening if their school made it a comfortable um, situation for them. 
Like, so I was at um, the Nassau County um, Enough is Enough sexual assault on campuses um, conference a few months ago, and I actually ran into somebody who is part of the Title IX office um, at my school. Um, I didn't even know they were there, but I, uh, I ran into her, and I approached her, introduced myself, and I immediately felt comfortable talking to this woman. I mean, just upon me, she was in the middle of doing something too, and I had to leave, so I felt really bad interrupting mm -hmm. her, but I wanted to make sure that I introduced myself and, and got her card and, and her information. So I interrupted her and immediately turned to me, biggest smile on her face, was so pleased that I introduced myself, was so happy to know that there was somebody from the school there. You know, it just... It made me feel like if something like that were to happen to me, I would feel so comfortable talking to her about it. And I think that's such an important thing that every school's Title IX office really needs to be that comfortable, compassionate atmosphere because that's going to make more people oh, want to yeah, come forward. Absolutely. You know, even if they see this entire drawn out process. If they if, know that they're they have people on their if there's side, there's someone to guide them through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because exactly. the other thing is like you know even just listening to that process, I'm like I don't even I don't even remember half the crap you just I said, know. and I'm sitting here listening to you talk I about know. it. So if this is an important thing to me, I'm gonna screw this up. There's yep. like forty-seven thousand yep. steps. I'm gonna screw it up, so yep. I'm not gonna bother. Yeah. So yeah, if you have someone willing to guide you through it, um, exactly, someone yeah, you mean, feel comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, like, just like how, you know, when you used to do your your crisis counseling at the hospital. Yeah. You know, these people would end up at the hospital, and they don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So just to have someone there to talk them through it and say, all you have to do is this. Exactly. And everything else we can worry about later. Exactly. So One step at a time. Yeah, basically what you did there in the hospitals was kind of like what this person is doing in the school. Yes. There has to be someone there yes. who's going to who's gonna tell you... All I need you to do is this one quick thing, and we're going to take it one step at a time. You don't have to worry about the whole process, because, yeah, I mean... Exactly. You're absolutely right. It just makes people want to... It'll make people want to come forward yeah. more, at 100%. So among the injustices within this case and Turner's ridiculously light sentence, there were some really amazing justices that came about because the community gathered together. The Santa Clara County community found all of this to be heinous in light of what actually happened and led by Michelle Dauber, the uh, Stanford law professor I mentioned earlier, they campaigned to recall the judge on the case. The California Attorney General's office supported the propriety of the county registrar of voters approval of the petition allowing the recall to go forward. Persky's legal team argued that since he was a state officer, only the California Secretary of State had the authority to approve its acceptance. But the recall vote required gathering 90,000 verified signatures. Persky paid $30,000 to the firm of Brian Seitchik, I think that's how you pronounce it, the manager of, <laughs> wait for it, the manager of Donald Trump's presidential campaign in Arizona to lead the opposition to the recall. Uh, yeah, isn't that nice? Doesn't surprise me. Nope. 
A retired judge living in Santa Cruz heard Persky's request for injunction to prevent the recall election and approved it. The demands for recall received support from Representative Ted Poe, Republican from Texas, who spoke in the United States House of Representatives to condemn Turner's sentence as too lenient and to call for Persky's removal. 90,000 signatures were required to recall Judge Persky, and on January 24th, 2018, the Santa Clara County Registrar of Voters confirmed they had enough at 94,539 signatures. This meant the recall vote could move on to the ballot ballot of the June 5th, 2018 election. Something else important to know about Judge Persky is that he has a history of making these atrocious decisions. In 2011, Persky presided over a civil lawsuit against multiple members of the De Anza College baseball team who were accused by plaintiff Jane Doe of gang raping the then underaged girl while she was unconscious until another party attendee who heard the commotion intervened. Again, great. Bystander. Right. Thank you to all these bystanders. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. really. I mean, it's not, like we were saying before, it's not easy <laughs> to get involved in something like this. No. It's not easy to be a good person in a society where it's really, really easy to not care. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's great for you people. <sighs> the civil trial came after the district attorney had declined to prosecute a criminal case as she thought evidence was lacking. During the civil trial, Persky decided that the jury should be allowed to view photographs of the plaintiff taken at another party she attended approximately a year after the alleged gang rape as per the defense's claim that this evidence contradicted the plaintiff's claims of suffering from PTSD. So, because she was going to a party a year later, that means she can't was cool. possibly yeah, have PTSD. Everything was cool. How dare she have a life? Yep. This is supposed to ruin your life. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then <laughs> the jury found the defendants not liable. So. Based on what? Based on, I guess, the fact that she couldn't possibly have PTSD, so it probably didn't happen. So, what? Mm-hmm. So, what? Yeah. Uh, okay. So, that's it. Wow, that's that's the dumbest thing I've heard yet. And yeah. I've heard three really dumb things so far. Yeah, yes, yes. There's a lot of dumb things in here. Wow. There's one really amazing thing in here, though. Okay. Yeah. So when the votes were tabulated in the June 2018 election, Persky was officially recalled, and Cindy Hendrickson, a Santa Clara County Assistant District Attorney, was voted in to replace him. That's not even the greatest thing in this. <laughs> Nearly 200,000 Santa Clara County voters turned out, voting to remove Persky by 61.51% to 38.49%, a margin of over 23%. Persky was the first judge to be recalled by voters in California in 86 years. Wow. And the first in the U.S. Jeez. since 1977. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. It's freaking awesome. And with this, there was still more good to come from this trial. Due to the public outrage over this trial and sentence of Turner, the California State Legislature passed two bills to change California state law regarding sexual assault. Bill 701 broadened California's definition of rape to include digital as well as penile penetration. So, now... Right, right. If I put any part of my body inside any part of another person's body without their consent, come on. Correct. Let, let's, be, let's be real about this. Yep, yep. finally. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
If I put anything in your body without consent, it yeah. doesn't even have to be a part of my body. I know. You're not supposed to put things inside of other no. people. No, but that's the but first. that's the difference between sexual assault and rape. Right. But and now in stupid. California, it means that digital penetration right. also is under the rape It category. should be all penetration. Yeah. Like, if you put a bullet in someone, that's right, illegal. Right, right, If I put a, a finger in someone without asking them, that's a, that I'm, should be illegal. If I, I, I mean, put a pine is, cone without asking you, that should be it illegal. It is illegal. It's just not up to the standard of rape. It should be the same. I agree. I agree. Um, and, you know, California is moving in that direction. Um, and then there was Bill 2888, which provided for a mandatory minimum sentence of three years in prison for sexual assault of an intoxicated or unconscious person. So they have to get three three years. They can't get stupid. Which is six still months. really not enough. But well, okay, I agree. It's better than, it's better than well, it's months. a minimum three years, so right. they can get more right. if warranted. Right. Uh, these bills were unanimously approved by the California legislature and signed into law by Governor Jerry Brown on September 30th, 2016. Go California. Yeah. <laughs> Furthermore, and this is one of my absolute favorite parts of this whole aftermath. So this is the part I've been waiting for. Mm. The second edition of the criminal justice textbook, Introduction to Criminal Justice, by University of Colorado Denver professors Callie Marie Renison and Mary Dodge, used Turner's mugshot as the accompanying <laughs> photo for the definition of rape. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I'll post the, the image on, uh, on Instagram, but it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's the 2017 edition, and it's on page 20 if you want to go look it up. Awesome. But, yeah. It's awesome. incredible. Awesome. So he is now literally, literally the, the child for sexual assault. Yes. Good. Yep. Jackass. Right? I mean, like, ugh, he disgusts me. Oh, my God. Yeah. He angers me so much. I'm not a proponent of violence, but I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> like, I really do. So anyway, the woman that Justice honored in a very convoluted and arbitrary way had been known as Emily Doe throughout this entire ordeal. In sexual assault cases, it is rare that the survivor is named due to the backlash he or she could face. That is the unfortunate world we live in. However, Emily Doe revealed her true self in September of 2019. Emily Doe was born June 12, 1992, in Palo Alto, California, as Chanel Miller. Now, what's super cool is um, her mom is a Chinese immigrant, and she's a writer, and her dad is a retired therapist. So she's actually, she has a Chinese name. And I can't remember what exactly it is, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, but um, apparently it sounds like Sha. So she named herself Chanel as her American name oh, okay. because it's similar to her Chinese name. Right. So I thought that was really cool. She has one younger sister whom she attended the Stanford University party with that fateful night. Chanel attended the UC Santa Barbara College of Creative Studies from which she graduated in 2014 with a degree in literature. In September 2019, Chanel wanted the world to know who she was and that she was not at all a victim. She was interviewed on 60 Minutes and released a memoir entitled Know My Name, which is a great book. Literally, everyone should go buy it and read it. It's 
uh, just recounting her her whole ordeal and just everything that went through her mind throughout this entire thing is it's pretty spectacular she has been adamant that she is not Brock Turner's victim and as she says in her book she does not belong to him he does not own any part of her she is Chanel Miller a survivor on November 1st 2016 prior to her coming out as Chanel Miller she was awarded a spot as one of Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year for her victim impact statement, which had been read over 11 million times. Wow. Yeah. Good. It was released after the sentencing hearing, and yeah. Good. People need to know that justice can be served, and, and you can move on after something like this. You don't want something like this ever to happen, but it's nice to know that people are moving past these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to read... Um, a little excerpt from it. And finally, to girls everywhere, I am with you. On nights when you feel alone, I am with you. When people doubt you or dismiss you, I am with you. I fought every day for you. So never stop fighting. I believe you. As the author Anne Lamott once wrote, lighthouses don't go running all over an island looking for boats to save. They just stand there shining. Although I can't save every boat, I hope that by speaking today, you absorbed a small amount of light, a small knowing that you can't be silenced, a small satisfaction that justice was served, a small assurance that we are getting somewhere, and a big, big knowing that you are important unquestionably, you are untouchable, you are beautiful, you are to be valued, respected, undeniably, every minute of every day. You are powerful, and nobody can take that away from you. To girls everywhere, I am with you. Thank you. So that was the end of her victim impact statement. I really like that lighthouse analogy. Yeah. That's cool. Right? That, that's really cool. I, I thought that was such a beautiful thing. When I was going through um, her statement to find a little excerpt, there were so many pieces that I wanted to pull, but I really felt like this is the message that I think needs to be sent out, especially during Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So when I saw that quote, I thought that was so, yeah, so great. Um, and I just, I love this whole part of it because this is the end of her, her statement, like I mentioned, and she's going through like thanking all the people who have helped her through this whole thing. And the end, she, she wanted to thank all the other women who have gone through what she went through and to let them know that they're not alone. I am incredibly passionate about this case and about cases like this. And no one should ever feel entitled to violate another human being in any way. This case just perpetuates the culture which allows entitled white rich boys to get away with whatever they want because our society believes they are more worthy than anyone else. But what about the survivors? They have to live a life knowing someone took so much away from them. Some can never get past that. If you are one of those people, I want you to know that you are worth so much more and you do not need to be defined by the actions of another. People who do these things to other human beings are vile. People who have these things done to them are not. We need to make this known. You are not dirty. You are not used. You are not trash. You are beautiful. You are strong. 
you're powerful. Chanel's advocacy will hopefully live on and let other survivors know there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Campus sexual assault is too common, but thankfully with new legislation, more students can come forward without fear of retribution. If you are considering going to college, research their policies regarding sexual violence and Title IX. Understand what they do to help students in these situations, and especially what they do to prevent these situations from happening in the first place. Prevention is important. Speaking up is important. Bringing more attention to these situations is important. We need to be heard. I want to quickly just thank Chanel Miller for being so brave and allowing the world to know she will continue to be a fighter and that this does not define her. And I also want to send a thank you out to Michelle Dauber for leading the charge to get Judge Persky recalled. These women are absolutely admirable. If you or someone you know has been a victim or survivor of sexual assault, reach out for help at marine.org, R-A-I-N-N dot org, or 1-800-656-HOPE-4673. And that concludes episode five of Blackbird. If you have a story you would like to share on Blackbird, please email us at blackbirdadvocacy at gmail.com. And don't forget to stop by and follow us on Instagram at blackbirdadvocacy. For all references used in this episode, please see the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you will subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. And please leave us a five-star review if you can. Stars, yay. Yeah, because that just makes us feel good. Stars are like chocolate, and I like chocolate. Sure. Okay. I like turtles. Anyway, thanks for listening. Be safe, be aware of your surroundings, and continue to social distance if you can. Control your droplets, people. Flatten the curve. Thank you.